Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, here today to talk to you about a little deal that you might not have heard of before, Microsoft and their Xbox divisions pending $69 billion acquisition of Activision, the makers of, among other things, the Call of Duty video game franchise. Now, even that description is a bit of a joke. This will be the 59th video in this, the longest playlist on the channel regarding the Microsoft Times Activision deal, which started more than a year ago talking about things like the merger agreement and merger announcement and concluded at the end of last year talking about the Federal Trade Commission here in the United States and their potential to block the deal, as well as the regulatory environment that Microsoft and Activision find themselves in in the United Kingdom through the Competition and Markets Authority, the CMA, and the European Union through their European Commission. Now, today's video is going to talk about the CMA in particular, so we're talking about the United Kingdom, which posted a notice of potential remedies to Microsoft based on their preliminary findings that the merger would cause a substantial listing of competition, and Sony's quote-unquote observations regarding that notice, which got a lot of traction in the games media over the last week, and which I want to talk to you about as Sony potentially losing the favor of that games media and potentially its own fans in what we're seeing on social media and elsewise and whether or not that is in fact actually happening. Before we get into the substance though, I do want to mention that this is a channel supported by viewers and listeners like you through our support platforms, Utreon and Patreon. If you are interested in supporting the channel and videos like this one, please consider checking it out. And in one of those tiers, you can sponsor a given episode per month as Karen Paulson, which we give special thanks to, has done today. Now, to start us off, I want to talk about an article written by Paul Tassi that was headlined in Forbes as Sony is starting to unravel with its wild Xbox Activision deal protests. And they're particularly concerned with one given statement that is made in Sony's observation documents, which we will be looking at in detail, just like we'll be looking at Microsoft's response. While there are plenty of disingenuous arguments on all sides of the debate, says Mr. Tassie, around Microsoft's pending acquisition of Activision, the more time goes on, the more it seems like Sony specifically is starting to lose the plot. Microsoft is increasingly trying to paint itself as the reasonable party, offering decade-long contracts for Call of Duty to its rivals, including Sony, and using data to try to explain why no, they're not suddenly going to take the series exclusive. Now, in my opinion, Microsoft has consistently tried to make itself this white knight reasonable party throughout the entire course of the last year, but certainly journalists are starting to reflect on that more as well in the last week. The specific statement they take issue with is that Sony said, for example, Microsoft might release a PlayStation version of Call of Duty where bugs and errors emerge only on the game's final level or after later updates. Even if such degradations could be swiftly detected, any remedy would likely come too late, by which time the gaming community would have lost confidence in PlayStation as a go-to venue to play Call of Duty. Indeed, as Modern Warfare 2 attests, Call of Duty is most often purchased in just the first few weeks of release. If it becomes known that the game's performance on PlayStation was worse than Xbox, Call of Duty gamers could decide to switch to Xbox for fear of playing their favorite game at a second-class or class-competitive venue. It's unclear why class-competitive venues would be a problem for Sony, but Sony is just putting it all out there to try to get this deal blocked, no question. Now, the interesting thing about that particular statement and what Mr. Tassie is about to say in his article is that that is not, on its face, as ridiculous to me as some of the things that Sony has said either in public or in the statements that they have made to these various regulatory bodies. But Mr. Tassie really finds a problem with it this past week. To be clear, he says, what Sony is accusing Microsoft here is having the potential to actively sabotage the PlayStation version of Call of Duty with bugs and errors. That is probably the most unhinged argument I've heard during this entire process, and given where we are, that's really saying something. Not only would Microsoft be literally insane to try something like that, it's honestly insane for Sony to suggest it as a genuine possibility. This says to me that Sony is running out of legitimate arguments here if they are turning towards actual conspiracies. Now, 
I want to give Sony the benefit of the doubt here and point out that one of the things that is happening is that Sony is using the regulator's own potential arguments in its response documents, or in this case, an observation document. And I really think that's what's happening here more than Sony really truly believing that Microsoft might try to do one of these particular things. The other thing I would point out is that Paul Tassi is not alone. I didn't just pluck him out of the sky. Tom Warren here at The Verge brings up this same argument with an upside down smiley face suggesting that PlayStation is crazy to say that this could possibly happen. Sony isn't happy with Microsoft's Call of Duty 10-year deal. Microsoft have dragged their feet, engaged only when since the regulatory outlook was darkening, and favored negotiating in the media over engaging with Sony. Nintendo and Nvidia both signed the 10-year deal. Microsoft says its 10-year deal for Call of Duty on PlayStation means any Call of Duty game can be on Sony's subscription service. Sony says Microsoft's proposal for licensing terms is troubling and would commercially destroy Sony's multi-game subscription business model. So Tom Warren is also looking at these arguments from Sony and saying they don't seem to bear water for him. And I don't disagree with that, but I also don't think it's some kind of new position that Sony has taken. I've highlighted on your screen right now a video that we did in November of last year where Sony started to really escalate its attacks on this particular agreement, culminating in a statement that the only way to preserve robust competition and protect consumers and independent developers in video gaming is to ensure that Activision remains independently owned and controlled. Sony had been fighting the merger on kind of typical grounds of this is going to harm us and could potentially harm consumers throughout the early regulatory documents that we saw. And then by the time you hit November of last year, they've escalated things to saying that this deal needs to be blocked or video gaming will collapse. So if we're talking about unhinged arguments, Sony had already escalated past the point where Paul Tassi seems concerned at the end of last year. But that's what raises the question to me, has Sony really kind of lost the voice of the game journalism industry? And are they going to be looking at more and more negative press as they continue to fight this fight? Now, as I mentioned, one of the things that we want to do in this particular video is go over exactly what the CMA has said about their remedies, what Microsoft has responded with, and what Sony has, quote unquote, observed. Now, if you're wondering why Sony doesn't have a response document, it's because they aren't a party to this particular issue. They aren't a party to the deal. They aren't a party to the regulatory environment, but they are essentially interested bystanders, so they can submit documents that are observations on the CMA's remedy notice, which look for all the world like they were responding as if they were a party to the deal. But we'll look at all these documents at length so that we can get a good feel for what's happening here without kind of it having to go through my filter and me telling you what I think is happening without looking at the words themselves. So let's take a look at what the CMA says. They say, look, we've got these potential problems with Call of Duty being owned by Microsoft because they could foreclose Call of Duty from coming on to their competing consoles, the PlayStation, the Nintendo, what have you, and that could hurt competition because those gaming consoles couldn't compete, or they could do the same thing with competing cloud gaming services to Xbox Now and just Game Pass in general. They've identified those issues. Microsoft has rejected them. Sony says, yep, that's exactly right, CMA, good job. But either way, the CMA says, if those are in fact the case, as we continue to investigate this particular issue, what should we be looking for to remedy them? What what should happen? Should we make you sell Activision? Should we make you sign these licenses that you're trying to sign with Nintendo and NVIDIA and others? And the CMA asks this question, and both Microsoft and Sony are going to have very different answers as to what these remedies should look like. The CMA first sets up kind of the legal standard. In deciding on a remedy, the CMA shall in particular have regard to the need to achieve as comprehensive a solution as is reasonable and practical to remedy the substantial lessening of competition, the SLC, and any adverse effects resulting from it. 
To this end, the CMA will seek remedies that are effective in addressing the SLC and its resulting adverse effects and will select the least costly and intrusive remedy that it considers to be effective. The CMA will seek to ensure that no remedy is disproportionate in relation to the SLC and its adverse effects. So this follows along with what we might recognize in American jurisprudence as being narrowly tailored to what it is that you're trying to achieve, right? The UK has different legal standards than the United States, but this is the same kind of concept that says we want to do something that actually fixes the problem that we've identified. That makes sense. But we also want to make sure it is as narrowly tailored. It is as close to the problem and least expensive to all involved as we can possibly make it. The government doesn't want to be in the business of picking winners and losers and destroying deals or companies when they see a problem like this one. So one of the major issues that Sony has when they advocate that Activision must not be allowed to become owned by Microsoft is that prohibiting the deal itself is basically the nuclear weapon of what these regulatory bodies can do. No, you can't even buy that company rather than, okay, you can buy it, but you have to sell off some of the assets or some of the business arms or whatever it might be, or you have to enter into a license agreement with Sony. And so they have a proportional issue that Sony is basically going to ignore in their observations that, but that Microsoft is going to key in on, as we will see. Now, the provisional SLC, so in this phase one of their review, they identified a substantial lasting competition as provisional, that this might be happening, but we have to research it a little bit more. And that's the vertical effects of input foreclosure, right? Microsoft buys a publisher. Call of Duty is that important to competing in the video game industry that if they keep it in their own system exclusive, that Sony will die. They won't be able to compete with Microsoft at all. And similarly to the to that, the cloud gaming services will could be foreclosed, and you could only ever have Xbox as a cloud gaming service provider. Those are what we identified above, but a lot of these regulatory documents repeat themselves a number of times. Possible remedies on which views are sought. In determining an appropriate remedy, the CMA will consider the extent to which different remedy options would be effective in remedying, mitigating, or preventing the SLC or any resulting adverse effects that have been provisionally identified. So they have to make sure that it's comprehensive. As set out in published remedies guidance, in merger inquiries, the CMA prefers structural remedies such as divestiture or prohibition over behavioral remedies because structural remedies are more likely to deal with an SLC and its resulting adverse effects. Behavioral remedies are less likely to have an effective impact on the SLC and its resulting adverse effects. And structural remedies rarely require monitoring and enforcement once implemented. Now, I think we need to back up a step and we can discuss what the difference between behavioral and structural remedies are, although it might be apparent to you already. Structural remedies are those that say you can't exist in this specific way. The structure of your company can't include Activision or can't include Call of Duty or can't include Activision and Blizzard or whatever it might be. And so we're just not going to let you buy either the whole shebang or portions of that. Divestiture is what refers to that portions of that concept. You can buy the company, but then you have to immediately sell portions. That's divesting it. Prohibition is you can't buy it at all. Behavioral remedies are what we're talking about with respect to licenses and the like that Microsoft continues to advocate for. Hey, we're willing to license it to Nintendo. We're willing to license it to NVIDIA. We're willing to license it to Sony. What more do you want from us? And this is a discussion about whether or not those behavioral remedies are acceptable to actually, uh, uh, to actually mitigate and prevent the problems that the CMA has identified. At this stage, the CMA has identified the possible structural remedies as follows, requiring a partial divestiture of Activision Blizzard, divestiture of just the assets associated with Call of Duty, divestiture of all of Activision out of ABK, or divestiture of Activision and Blizzard out of ABK, so that you basically only get to keep King, prohibition of the merger in its entirety. What's interesting about that, especially number three here, is that we have not seen anybody, to use a legal parlance, brief 
the concept of Blizzard causing a particular issue with this with this deal. We don't see World of Warcraft popping up as a reference point as much as we do Call of Duty. So it's a little bit unclear where the CMA came up with the concept that potentially they should be forced to sell Activision and Blizzard and just keep King. But that's one of the things that the CMA has proposed here and is asking Microsoft to comment on. Behavioral remedies are designed to address an SLC and or its adverse effects by regulating the ongoing conduct of parties following a merger. The CMA will generally only use behavioral remedies as the primary source of remedial action where divestiture and or prohibition is not feasible or the relevant costs of any feasible structural remedy far outseed the scale of the adverse effects of the SLC. The SLC is expected to have a short duration or behavioral measures will preserve substantial relevant customer benefits that would be largely removed by structural remedies. At this stage, the CMA considers that certain divestitures and our prohibition are in principle feasible remedies in this case. The provisional SLCs are not time limited, and while RCBs have not yet been assessed in detail, that's your relevant customer benefits, evidence on efficiencies received to date does not suggest that RCBs might be substantial. Now, there's a lot of interesting things happening in just these paragraphs, but this is one of the reasons we've called out the CMA before in prior videos. <clears throat> this seems to ignore a number of aspects of the deal as we understand it right now. One, Divestiture and a prohibition of this particular company is perhaps not feasible because Activision Blizzard King is in the Call of Duty business. We've watched it for years now as Activision has become basically a number of studios providing support and support services to the creation of a Call of Duty game. That's one of the reasons the CMA found Call of Duty to be such an unusual asset, that it couldn't be matched by other bodies because so many of the studios were focused on making a Call of Duty product. So it's interesting to see the CMA then say, divestiture and prohibition seems to be feasible in the strictest sense that's true that you can just say hey you can't have activision you can't have call of duty but the whole company is basically making a single product so it seems a little bit unusual to say okay yes you can buy the company but you have to divest everything that's related to this one product that they're making when so many of the tendrils of activision are focused on making this specific product so to my mind, it doesn't seem practically feasible, even if it might be legally feasible from a structural standpoint. And that's something that the CMA would have to look at. And it's one of the things that Microsoft might wind up arguing in the long term. As for the RCBs, the relevant customer benefits, CMA says they have not received any evidence to suggest that RCBs might be substantial. This is why you see Microsoft going out with advertisements and public statements about 150 million more players available for Call of Duty if they are allowed to purchase Activision. That's because when they sign the licenses with Nintendo and Nvidia, that means that at least 150 million people that have those particular systems might be able to access Call of Duty when couldn't before. Now, of course, that number is overstated because chances are if you have a Nintendo Switch or if you have a Nintendo, an Nvidia GeForce Now account, you've got a good chance of having an Xbox and already having access to Call of Duty or a PlayStation and already having access to Call of Duty or a Steam account and already having access to Call of Duty or Battle.net or wherever you might find Call of Duty for your purposes. So that's a high number. But certainly Microsoft has made the necessary statements to suggest that, okay, if we get Activision, a lot more people are going to get access to it. That's going to overall help customers have access to a game they wouldn't otherwise have access to. And you should take that into account, CMA. So the CMA is saying that we don't know anything about RCBs is at least to my eye a little bit disingenuous from the CMA and is indicative of an agency that really wants to do something potentially about this deal. The parties in this case have not yet proposed any potential remedies to the CMA. That's noteworthy because Microsoft hasn't gone forward and directly said, we're going to do this and this and this for you. But as we've talked about in prior videos in this series, it doesn't make a lot of sense to negotiate against yourself. So until you know exactly what they want, you're not going to see a lot of movement from most entities 
that are looking at a merger situation like this one. Microsoft has, however, informed us of existing and potential contractual agreements with third-party platforms relating to access to Call of Duty. So here's that Nintendo and NVIDIA concept. Accordingly, while none of the circumstances in which the CMA would select a behavioral remedy as the primary source of remedial action and merger investigation appear to be present, the CMA will also consider a behavioral access remedy as a possible remedy. So the CMA is saying essentially that we don't believe that any of these behavioral conditions are here, but because Microsoft has tried to say that there's going to be an access remedy that they're going to offer, we'll consider it. Access remedies are a form of behavioral remedy which seek to maintain or restore competition by enabling competitors to have access on appropriate terms to the products and facilities of a merger entity that they require to remain competitive. Access remedies normally require an access commitment which is set out in significant detail so that both customers and monitoring agencies can enforce compliance effectively. In this case, an access remedy would look to ensure third-party access to Activision Blizzard Inc.'s content that is necessary to remedy the provisional SLCs. We consider in further detail below each of the possible remedies on which views are sought. More generally, the CMA will consider any other practicable remedy that the parties or any interested third parties, that's Sony to you and me, may propose that could be effective in addressing the SLCs and or any resulting adverse effects. Now on prohibition, they say prohibition of the merger would prevent the provisional SLCs from arising in any relevant market. Yeah, if they can't own Activision, there can't possibly be any problem associated with their ownership of Activision. A little bit tautological, but true. The CMA therefore takes the provisional view that full prohibition would represent a comprehensive solution to all aspects of the SLCs that it has provisionally found, sure, and that the risks in terms of its effectiveness are very low. Now, this last bit that says the risks in terms of its effectiveness are very low is important to remember the of its effectiveness part. So the risks are very low in that if you prohibit this, there isn't a risk that there could still be SLCs from Microsoft's ownership of Activision. Again, this is a paragraph that is nonsensical to normal readers and non-lawyers, but it's included because they want to cover each and every aspect of the potential remedies they're looking at. Sony is going to key in on this particular sentence and suggest that there aren't any risks of essentially overcomprehension from prohibition, and that's not going to work, as we'll see in the language they use. They're going to cut out this sentence, and they're going to cut out this middle part. Divestiture. In evaluating possible divestitures as a remedy to the provisional SLCs, it is found the CMA will consider the likelihood of achieving a successful divestiture and the associated risks including related to the scope of the divestiture package, what assets seem to be in the bucket, identification of a purchaser, and the effectiveness of the divestiture process. In this case, the merger is anticipated, which means that we would expect the divestiture of the relevant part of Activision Blizzard Inc.'s business to be substantially completed prior to completion of the merger. The scope of the divestiture package. We need to restore the competitive constraint imposed by Activision Blizzard that would be lost under the merger. So it can't be Sony that buys it. It can't be Nintendo. It can't be another hardware manufacturer that buys it. It has to be an independent third party that's going to keep Activision independently thinking about where it needs to have access, where it needs to sell into, like the PlayStation or the Xbox ecosystems. In defining the scope of an investiture package that will address any SLCs, the CMA will normally seek to identify the smallest viable standalone business that can compete successfully on an ongoing basis, and that includes all the relevant operations pertinent to the area of competitive overlap. Now, as I said above, the difficulty here is that Activision has become the Call of Duty company. They really aren't making anything else, and all of their studios are entering into different support aspects of making the Call of Duty product. If that is in fact the case at Activision, it's very difficult to see how you can't spin it off into something that is essentially the same, but whether Microsoft would want to purchase Blizzard King rather than Activision is an open question because Microsoft doesn't just need Call of Duty. They need developers. They need companies that make video games. 
and from the sounds of it to me, if you divest Call of Duty assets or you divest Activision, you're going to be left with very little of the infrastructure that you had at ABK to actually make products to put on the market. The SLCs we have provisionally found do not relate to the entirety of Activision Blizzard Inc.'s business. Therefore, in principle, remedying these SLCs may be achieved by divesting a part of Activision Blizzard Inc.'s activities. Partial divestiture would involve splitting up Activision Blizzard Inc.'s business and divesting a package of assets relating to the provisional SLCs, particularly Call of Duty. Scrolling down a little bit, they do the same thing with respect to cloud gaming. And then we talk a little bit about consumer benefits, right? The act provides that the benefit is only an RCB if it accrues or may be expected to accrue to relevant customers within the UK within a reasonable time from the creation of the relevant merger situation and as a result of the creation of that situation and it was or is unlikely to accrue without the creation of that situation or a similar lessening of competition. Now, the RCB in this particular case is that Microsoft is trying to establish that Call of Duty, a game so important to the video game industry that the CMA is considering blocking the deal, is going to be made available to a lot more players and a lot more competitors to Microsoft than it would be if the merger didn't take place. Now, the CMA isn't necessarily buying it, but that's the RCB that we're looking at here. They ask for views on the cost of the remedies. The CMA invites views on what relevant costs are likely to arise, if any, in implementing the different the different possible remedy options the CMA is considering or any remedies you wish to put forward for the CMA's consideration. The CMA invites views on the nature of any RCBs and on the scale and likelihood of such benefits and the extent, if any, to which these are affected by the different possible remedy options. So the CMA goes out there and says, we need to have something that's comprehensive, a solution for making sure that Call of Duty can't be foreclosed in the console space or the cloud gaming space and we need it to be as narrowly tailored as possible. And we're asking Microsoft, and they know they're asking Sony, to comment on these particular things. Microsoft has the first document that we're gonna look at here. So they start out by saying, this is our response to your notice of possible remedies. For reasons that will be set out in Microsoft's response to the provisional findings, or have been, Microsoft strongly disagrees with the CMA's provisional conclusion that the merger may result in a substantial lessening of competition in consoles or cloud gaming in the UK. So Microsoft is basically doing the lawyerly thing, saying, hey, we're going to respond to these as if you had a legitimate beef, but we are not giving up on the fact that we've already put forth a document that says you do not have a legitimate beef. We are not concerned about the things that you're concerned about, and this is ridiculous argumentation. Microsoft has no intention of engaging in input foreclosure or of making Call of Duty exclusive to the Xbox platform. To the contrary, since day one, Microsoft has been focused on using this acquisition to bring more games to more people on more platforms and devices than ever before to bring more competition into gaming than ever before. Now, they might not have the intention, but I don't think any of these regulators is wrong to say they could have the incentive to foreclose it. There's certainly an avenue that we can see where Call of Duty exclusive to Xbox Game Pass is useful to selling subscriptions to Xbox Game Pass. Post-transaction, Call of Duty will remain available on PlayStation, the largest console platform globally, and PC. Moreover, Microsoft intends to expand the reach of Call of Duty to new platforms and has signed binding agreements with Nintendo and NVIDIA to bring the game to an additional 150 million gamers worldwide if the merger is approved. The merger will therefore result in substantial benefits to UK consumers and developers. And then there's a lot of snips here. Those are areas of confidential business information that have been removed so that they aren't made public as part of these documents. The CMA will have seen what they actually say. Microsoft estimates on a conservative basis that the benefits to UK consumers will exceed huge amounts of money in the next 10 years alone. Globally, the benefits to consumers will, on a conservative basis, be at least some huge amount of billions of dollars over the next decade. 
A divestment of any part of Activision or Call of Duty would extinguish these benefits and be ineffective. A divestment would preserve the status quo, whereby gamers on the dominant console platform, PlayStation, receive exclusive Call of Duty benefits, which are not available to gamers on other platforms, including Xbox and PC. Now, Microsoft is going to harp on this, and this is something that we mentioned when we first looked at Microsoft's response in the call and the Competition Markets Authority document regarding this issue, where they said Call of Duty needs to be made on an equal playing field. And we commented on the fact that Sony already has exclusives with respect to Call of Duty. It's not an equal playing field. Microsoft is going to jump on that and repeat it again and again. This is the first time that we see it where they say, look, right now PlayStation has exclusive benefits that aren't available to other gamers. We're going to make them available to more gamers. Your job is not to figure out which group of gamers should get the benefits. Your job is to make sure that a merger of this type doesn't overall harm consumers in the gaming industry or the console industry or the cloud gaming industry, but not to pick winners and losers, as what Microsoft is hitting on right here. In addition to the legally binding agreements entered into with Nintendo and NVIDIA, Microsoft is proposing a package of licensing remedies which guarantee parity between the PlayStation and Xbox platforms in respect of Call of Duty and ensure wide availability of Call of Duty and other Activision titles on cloud gaming services. So they say they've got parity as a guarantee, which is not something that Sony guarantees. They pay money to not have parity. Microsoft believes that the criteria for CMA to consider behavioral remedies are met in this case. First, the relevant costs of any feasible structural remedy far exceed the scale of the adverse effects of the alleged SLCs. Second, relevant customer benefits, RCBs, are likely to be substantial compared with any adverse effects of the merger, and these benefits would be largely preserved by behavioral remedies but not by structural remedies. Microsoft has carefully designed its package of remedies to be self-executing and enforceable at Microsoft's own cost. So let's break down this paragraph. One. We looked at what the CMA said with respect to behavioral and structural remedies in their own document. And the nature of using behavioral remedies was that the structural remedies would have too high a cost or not be feasible, that the SLCs would be short in duration, so we shouldn't prohibit the deal, and that behavioral measures would provide substantial relevant customer benefits. So what does Microsoft do? But Microsoft says it's not feasible, it's too costly, and the RCBs don't exist if we don't have access to Activision, right? They say they've entered into legally binding contracts with Nintendo and NVIDIA, but they're conditional contracts. They can't promise to have Call of Duty on Nintendo if they don't own Call of Duty. So you have to let the merger go through to see Call of Duty on Nintendo, and Activision isn't going to do that by themselves, says Microsoft. This last sentence, Microsoft has carefully designed its package of remedies to be self-executing and enforceable at Microsoft's own cost, is designed to say, hey, look, CMA, you don't need to pay for enforcement here, and it's not going to be something that is going to wait for eons after the merger. Once the merger is consummated, once it is approved, and we actually exchange assets and money, then we will be bound to deliver Call of Duty on Nintendo and NVIDIA. These remedies are under discussion with the European Commission to the extent that the Commission finds a significant impediment to effective competition. The demands of comedy, that's with a T, not a D, require the CMA to consider the international dimension carefully, particularly given the, the murder situation is taking place outside of the jurisdiction and the UK accounts for only X percent of Call of Duty revenues and X percent of global Call of Duty monthly active users. Here Microsoft is saying, hey look, you've got a lot of regulators looking at this thing and you need to pay careful attention to what they're thinking about because you don't want to be the rogue nation that is deciding against everybody else that's going to approve this deal. Now, as we've talked about, and we, as you may have heard on the internet or elsewhere, international law is a bit of a legal fiction. There aren't really bounds on the sovereignty of countries in general, or they haven't entered into ones that are they're willing to say, we have to accept a deal that we think is bad for our con consumers if the European Union decides that it's okay. Right? There's nothing that the UK is bound to that says, okay, Brazil accepted it, we should accept it too. But Microsoft is right in at least making the argument that says, hey, you have to consider that this isn't where the companies are located. Call of Duty really isn't that important to your particular 
consumer base. And so if you're going to be the ones to block, you're acting outside of the international norms that are governing mergers and acquisitions in general. But that's more of an equitable kind of argument, more than a legal one, right? The other ones are based on standards of the CMA and what they have to approve and how their guidelines work. This is basically saying, look, if everybody else approves it, you don't want to be the cheese standing alone because you're going to look bad and international comedy agreement, accord, general friendliness between countries requires you to at least look at that carefully. First, Microsoft doubles down on the fact that they think there will be RCBs. The merger will result in benefits to consumers in the form of lower prices, higher quality, and greater choice in a number of products in the UK, as well as greater innovation. Currently, Call of Duty is only available on PlayStation, Xbox, and Windows PC via Battle.net and Steam. Gamers on PlayStation have access to Call of Duty content and timed exclusives. As a result of the merger, gamers on Nintendo, Xbox, and PC will receive significant benefits. In addition, there will be benefits to the gaming platforms themselves such as Valve, Steam, and Nintendo, which are also customers for the purposes of the RCB analysis, which is an interesting sentence and not one that's really harped on by either of the parties. Right? We're looking at customers here, and we're thinking about end users, the people that play Call of Duty and actually game with the product. Technically speaking, the actual distributors here, the hardware or the software in the respect of Steam, are customers of the publisher because they pay them money in order to have a game on their system that they can then move customers through and make money in their own way. So they're saying that, well, these parties, Valve and Nintendo, are customers for purposes of RCB analysis, and they're going to benefit because we've already entered into conditional agreements of some kind. The availability of Call of Duty on Nintendo will result in a greater choice of goods and services. Call of Duty is currently only available on Xbox and PlayStation. Microsoft entered into a final agreement with Nintendo on February 2023 to publish Call of Duty titles on Nintendo post-merger. The agreement provides that Microsoft will develop and publish future native console versions of Call of Duty titles for Nintendo platforms for at least 10 years. Microsoft will publish future Call of Duty versions for Nintendo platforms on the same date as the release of those versions on Xbox console platforms, and will maintain feature and content parity of the console versions published on Xbox console platforms, subject to Nintendo policy requirements. So if Nintendo doesn't want a severed head, there might be differences there. It's interesting to note that they say native console versions, because I assume that the Call of Duty license would include something like cloud-based gaming, because the Switch is so much less powerful than the Xbox Series X, for instance. But they say they'll be native to the to the Nintendo platforms, and they will be published day and date with the Xbox console platforms, and will be identical content parity to what's on the Xbox console platforms, subject to Nintendo having blocks on things. The benefits will accrue within a reasonable time period, so it will increase the choice of Nintendo Switch users immediately after the merger. Call of Duty includes both the free-to-play title Warzone and buy-to-play releases. The game engine that powers Warzone is mature and has been optimized to run on a wide range of hardware devices. So for those of you that say, hey, it's not going to work on a Switch, it will, says Microsoft. Warzone supports PC hardware with GPU cards that were released as far back as 2015, prior to the release of the Nintendo Switch in 2017. Now that's interesting, but we know that even in 2015, there were cards that were more powerful than what the Nintendo Switch actually uses, which is a kind of mobile cell phone chip to operate its 3D graphics. So this might be a little bit of a um, sleight of hand trick here insofar as I have no doubt that there were cards that are supported to play Warzone that are stronger than what the Nintendo Switch is even with this two year difference in release. But their advocates are trying to argue that, hey, we've looked at this and the Switch is gonna be able to run it. The Activision development team have a long history of optimizing game performance for available hardware capabilities. The parties are confident that in addition to Warzone, Call of Duty buy-to-play titles, i.e. Modern Warfare 2, can be optimized to run on Nintendo Switch in a timely manner using standard techniques which have been used to bring games such as Apex Legends, Doom Eternal, Fortnite, and Crisis 3 to the Switch. Activision estimates that this can be done within a period of around X months. 
So shortly after the merger were agreed to and Nintendo were allowed to license Call of Duty, we can get current games in the buy-to-play format over to the Nintendo Switch. And then a bunch of stuff that was removed. So this is Microsoft getting out in front of what they know will be the obvious argument from certain parties, which is that the Switch can't possibly play these games, so your license with Nintendo is effectively illusory. Microsoft says, no, they can. Now, whether or not that's true is going to depend on how you feel about Call of Duty and what the Switch can do. I'm not sure whether I believe it or not. But certainly the Switch has done a number of amazing things with developers focusing their attention on delivering a port to that system. The Witcher 3 is one of those that I would use as a reference point in, in how far it gets. But it do certainly doesn't have comparable graphics to what the Xbox or the PlayStation puts out there. Even taking into account any technical limitations of the current Nintendo Switch, Microsoft estimates on a highly conservative basis that the net present value of the benefits to Nintendo customers of having access to Call of Duty over 10 years to be at least X million dollars or X million pounds. By widening access to Call of Duty, the merger will have the added benefit of increasing the pool of gamers able to play the game, improving the cross-play functionality of the game, and enabling more gamers to play with their friends. This efficiency will arise from X and is therefore both timely and likely. It is also clear that the benefit is merger-specific as Activision X. Presumably this is a statement that Activision would not be bringing it to the Switch without us. Microsoft's plans to make Activision content available in Game Pass day and date will increase customer choice and lower the cost of access. As acknowledged by the CMA, the inclusion of Activision content in Game Pass day and date will also benefit Xbox and PC gamers who, who snip Call of Duty gamers in the UK. So they represent a certain percentage of the gamers that play Call of Duty. The CMA accepts that Activision will not make its most valuable games, such as Call of Duty, available on subscription services on the date of release absent the merger. This reflects Activision's concerns regarding the potential impact on the buy-to-play revenue of placing any games, especially new games, and day-and-date releases on multi-game subscription services. First, placing Call of Duty on a multi-game subscription service SNP. This risk makes it practically impossible for a multi-game subscription service to offer enough money, one would assume, to incentivize Activision to participate for new releases. Second. Popular content such as Call of Duty may attract gamers to a multi-game subscription, but gamers may easily switch to playing other games in the subscription catalog at no additional cost. By placing its games on a multi-game subscription, Activision loses the direct relationship with gamers and cedes control over the marketing, messaging, curating, and quality control related to its games. Activision, therefore, expects to be snipped. During previous negotiations, Activision indicated that it's snipped. The CMA accepts that other major publishers do not make their top titles available in multi-game subscriptions on release, given the risk of cannibalization effects. So we know this. We know Sony doesn't release its main AAA games day and date on their service. And we know other developers don't do that with Game Pass or PlayStation Plus. So all this is saying from the Microsoft perspective is, look, this stuff wouldn't be on Game Pass unless we bought them. Microsoft intends that future Activision releases will be made available on Game Pass on the day of release. They further said the efficiency is merger-specific. The source of the merger-specific benefit is that pre-merger Activision incurs expense of bringing its titles to Game Pass but does not internalize the full benefits of the decision, which will be to bring more users into Game Pass and increase engagement with other titles, generating benefits for Microsoft and third-party publishers. Post-transaction, these spillovers will be internalized to Microsoft because the merged entity will be able to take a more holistic view, taking into account the positive effects on Game Pass overall. This effect is not just hypothetical, but is rather proven by the way negotiations have unfolded in the past. The merged entity will always find it optimal to bring a title to Game Pass if the anticipated incremental revenues exceed the cost of cannibalized sales through other channels. The effect is a form of elimination of double marginalization and is consistent with standard results in economics literature which show that negotiations over an asset will often lead to efficient trades failing to take place because the purchaser holds out for a lower sum and the seller for a higher one. 
And I think this is basically right, right? The only reason that Microsoft would bring it to Game Pass and Activision wouldn't is that Activision doesn't benefit from increased subscriptions to Game Pass and Microsoft does. And you don't have to like that. Microsoft has a good economics argument here to say that Activision doesn't have the same incentives to bring it over to Game Pass that we do. As the CMA accepts, this benefit will mean that gamers can access Activision's content, such as the most recent releases of Call of Duty, as part of Microsoft's multi-game subscription bundle where, absent the merger, only older games might have become available for short periods of time. Contractual provisions will prevent Microsoft placing new Call of Duty releases on Game Pass before X. This is with Sony, presumably. However, other Activision games will be placed in Game Pass earlier. So those asking the question, will Call of Duty become a Game Pass game as soon as this deal is consummated, the answer is no. This sentence here says that Sony locked away the Activision Call of Duty games for some period of time through their marketing deal, which we can presume goes through at least 2024, and so they can't be brought to Game Pass before X date that they're not sharing with us in this document. One of the goals and effects of the merger is to expand Game Pass faster than the counterfactual without the deal. As such, the quality-adjusted price of Game Pass would fall post-merger. Now, this is a little bit of sleight of hand as well from Microsoft. I'm not saying this is a bad argument. I'm not saying it's a disingenuous argument. It maybe just isn't as useful as they would present it in this giant paragraph. They say, hey, if you wanted to play Call of Duty and Game Pass games in the counterfactual, you would have had to buy Call of Duty and Game Pass. And so, if Call of Duty is added to the Game Pass, the quality-adjusted price of Game Pass falls. That's not really how we usually think about prices in the market. It's higher quality product, so the quality adjustment means that for your same amount of money, you get more. But we don't know whether or not Game Pass price will increase. Specifically, the addition of new content to Game Pass is a reduction in the combined price of a bundle consisting of the pre-existing bundle plus the new title. Prior to adding a new title, the price paid by a consumer wanting access to both the bundle and the new title for a year is the annual bundle price plus the purchase price of the title. Yes, it's advanced lawyer math here. After adding the title to Game Pass at unchanged prices, kind of an assumption, the price of the combination is reduced by the price of the new title. The benefits of this price reduction accrue to gamers who choose to purchase the bundle and play the new title. Sure, there are several ways gamers may realize this benefit. Gamers who would have otherwise purchased both Game Pass and the title, but after purchase only purchased Game Pass to access the combined content, receive a price reduction benefit of the fully voided price of the new title. Yeah, if you have Game Pass and you were going to buy Call of Duty, you don't have to buy Call of Duty anymore. Gamers who would have otherwise purchased only Game Pass and not the new title, but after the edition played the combined content, also receive a price reduction of the full price of the new title. Maybe. I mean, Game Pass gives you access, but if you weren't going to buy the game anyway, it's really not that you got a reduction in price of Game Pass to the price of the new title. It's that you got a little bit of a higher quality for your Game Pass product. Gamers who would otherwise have purchased only the new title and not Game Pass, but after the addition of the title chose instead to purchase only Game Pass, experience a price discount for Game Pass up to the price of the full title. Maybe, but they're now subscribed to something they weren't going to buy before. So, I mean, these, these get a little bit specious. Gamers who currently neither buy Call of Duty nor Game Pass, but who choose to purchase Game Pass after addition of the title, receive a price reduction of up to the full price of the title. These are probably right mathematically. But logically, they don't make a ton of sense to what we're looking at as an economics question. Microsoft conservatively estimates the net present value of the benefit over 10 years to be around X million dollars or pounds for Game Pass subscribers on Xbox and X million dollars or pounds for Game Pass subscribers on PC. And again, I don't have any problem with you trying to put your best foot forward and make these kinds of arguments, but I think the best benefit, the one that they put on the top line, is if you were going to buy both, you don't have to buy both anymore. That makes sense. Everything else is a little bit more attenuated. 
Game Pass prices will not increase as a result of the merger, and certainly will not increase to a point that offsets the substantial benefits of Activision titles coming to Game Pass on a day-in-day basis. This is especially so given Game Pass will continue to be constrained by buy-to-play. Now, what's interesting there is that this is also a kind of sideswipe argument as to whether their subscription service is actually a separate market to buy-to-play. Right? We've talked about it a lot in this video series, but one of the main arguments I have against the FTC and the CMA and how they've come out and tried to write these markets so that they could be monopolized by Microsoft is that Game Pass is not, in my eyes, and I think in economic size in general, a separate market to purchasing video games. It's just a different business model for getting video game access into players' hands. And so by saying, we're not going to increase the price of Game Pass because it's constrained by buy-to-play, they are suggesting that that's the same market. They're substitutes for each other, which is true. I think that's accurate, what Microsoft is arguing here. But note that it is also an argument against the entirety of the CMA's issue statement that they slipped in there with the last line of the heading. The provisional findings are postulating that the price of Game Pass would go up as a result of the merger to a degree that it offset the benefits set out above. But no mechanism is put forward to explain why this would be so. The integration of Activision and Microsoft would result in a classic elimination of double marginalization because Microsoft will be able to acquire these games at opportunity cost and will have incentives to distribute them more broadly and increase the output of Game Pass relative to its counterfactual. In order to increase output, Microsoft will need to offer Game Pass at a lower quality adjusted price. This is exactly what Microsoft has done when it added content to Game Pass in the past, with, for example, the ZeniMax transaction resulting in additional content, but no increase in Game Pass subscription prices. And now look, this video is going to talk a lot about how Microsoft is mostly making good arguments and Sony is mostly making bad ones, but here, again, I think it's a little bit disingenuous. ZeniMax is not the same kind of deal, and they didn't spend $69 billion on purchasing ZeniMax. So when you talk about that amount of money, I think it is reasonable to say, are you going to try to go get this back with an increase in price in Game Pass when the quality value is so much higher than your nearest competitor? This is especially so, says Microsoft, given that Game Pass users are price sensitive and an increase in the price of Game Pass would affect all users, including those who, that do not value or play Call of Duty. Game Pass subscribers can cancel at any time after a month of play, as Call of Duty titles are only released once a year. Any impact would be short-lived, as gamers who exhaust their enthusiasm for the new version of Call of Duty within a few months will churn, will leave, because of the higher price. As such, any price increase would be counterproductive, as it would increase subs subscriber churn rates. This is one of those areas where I could see, much like we saw with respect to the CMA arguing that Xbox lied about whether or not they would take ZeniMax games exclusive, such as Starfield and Elder Scrolls, that you could easily see Microsoft saying, well, we're going to have to increase the price here to justify our spend. And this paragraph is going to be one that's hung around their neck at the end of the day. I don't believe them that they, there isn't a reason to increase the price. That doesn't mean the price will increase, but this is one of those areas where I think you can go a little bit too far with your advocacy and this gives me a bad taste. If I were in the CMA and I already was concerned that Microsoft is untrustworthy, this is the kind of paragraph I would point to. Inclusion of Activision content in Game Pass will spur Sony to invest in its subscription offering. By enabling Microsoft to compete more effectively against Sony, the merger can also be expected to push Sony to improve its subscription offering to the benefit of more than 46 million subscribers. This paragraph is essentially the, hey, we're competing hard. That's what competition does. To the extent that you exist, regulatory body, it is designed to protect competition because you feel that competitors competing increases quality for consumers, decreases prices, and that's what's going to happen here. Sony's going to have to match us because we're putting our money where our mouth is. Indeed, Sony has already significantly improved PlayStation Plus in response to the announcement of the merger, introducing new tiers and adding additional content. You can already see it happening, regulatory body. The availability of existing COD content on Xbox and PC will result in a higher quality of goods and services. 
Call of Duty is not currently available on equal terms on PlayStation, Xbox, and PC due to the agreements which Sony has had in place since 2015 and that Xbox had before that, I believe. Sony has Call of Duty content and timed exclusives. One element of Sony's acknowledged content leadership is the fact that it has Call of Duty content and timed exclusives. These include exclusive content such as extra tier skips on the battle pass, the ability to access additional experience points, combat packs, in-game character customizations, discounted console bundles, and exclusive early access to alpha and beta versions. Following the merger, these benefits will be available to Xbox and PC gamers. The majority of gamers who play Call of Duty each month in the UK are on Xbox and PC. PlayStation gamers represent only X percent of Call of Duty monthly active users in the UK, and so we'll be bringing these benefits to more people than they would in the status quo. Neither Call of Duty nor other Activision games are currently available on any cloud gaming services. Since, since the provisional findings were issued, Microsoft has entered a comprehensive agreement with NVIDIA, which provides for Activision content to be made available on NVIDIA GeForce Now. The key terms of the agreement are completely snipped out of this document. The benefit is merger-specific. Following signing of the NVIDIA agreement, the merger will ensure that Activision content is available on multiple cloud gaming providers, thereby delivering significant benefits to consumers in terms of dynamic competition. And any worry that you had about us exclusivizing Call of Duty content on our cloud services would seem to be otherwise mitigated. Microsoft will expand into mobile gaming and challenge the existing duopoly over mobile app distribution. Now, interestingly enough, none of the CMA, the EC, or the FTC have really argued about the purchase of King or Microsoft entering into mobile because Microsoft doesn't have a great presence in mobile gaming right now. There's really not a fight to be had. But Microsoft seems to have been ready to use the fight against Apple and Google as part of their argument that they're the good guys and that the deal should be allowed to go through. So this is essentially kind of a vestigial tale of an argument that Microsoft had ready and loaded to use to say the merger will result in benefits to consumers in the mobile gaming distribution in the form of lower prices, higher quality, greater choice, and greater innovation. This includes both end consumers and developers of native mobile games, each of which are relevant customers of mobile app stores. The key strategic rationale for the merger is to expand Xbox's presence in mobile, where its ability to reach gamers is impeded by Apple and Google's effective duopoly in the provision of mobile app stores. We've talked about this in the past, but basically every regulatory body and every legislature in the world hates Apple and Google right now. So Microsoft looked at that and said, well, let's make us the fighters that are going to defeat Apple and Google and they can back us for that reason. Building on Activision's existing communities of mobile gamers, including Call of Duty Mobile, Warzone Mobile, and Diablo Immortal, Microsoft aims to scale the Xbox Store to create a new mobile game distribution platform, Xbox Mobile Platform. So here we see Microsoft's strategy is that they want to have their own Apple Arcade, their own App Store that goes on these various phones, and a new mobile game distribution platform will benefit consumers and developers. Now one area that you can argue here is that Apple and Google are going to fight that access point pretty extensively, so we don't know whether this will ever accrue. By creating a new mobile game distribution platform, the merger will deliver significant benefits to gamers and developers, which will be provided with additional distribution options outside of the existing mobile app stores. More than SNP billion gamers played games on mobile devices in 2022, of which SNP million are in the UK. The CMA has identified that weak competition within and between Apple and Google's mobile ecosystems is harming consumers, including through acting as a break on innovation, imposing prices above a competitive rate, and degraded user experiences. By enabling Microsoft to challenge the existing duopoly, the merger has the potential to create substantial benefits for UK consumers and game developers. You don't want Apple and Google running your mobile gaming, do you, UK? Says Microsoft. And so, even though that part of the deal isn't really being challenged, they are using that to say that these RCBs will be harmed if you don't let us complete the deal in some form or fashion. 
In this section, Microsoft sets out why a content licensing remedy to Sony is the most proportionate and effective remedy available should the CMA maintain the console gaming SLC in its final report. Specifically, this section outlines Microsoft's proposed content licensing remedy, explains why Microsoft's proposed licensing remedy effectively addresses the SLC, and explains why Microsoft's proposed content licensing remedy will preserve and enhance the RCBs. To resolve the console gaming SLC, Microsoft will commit to continue licensing Call of Duty to Sony, including all existing and future releases on the Xbox console for a period of 10 years. So this section is actually pretty useful in answering a couple of questions that we've had throughout this playlist. And that is, what does Call of Duty mean? Right? When Phil Spencer says Call of Duty will remain on PlayStation, does he mean Warzone? Does he mean the existing games aren't going to be pulled? We know that. But what about new games? What about Modern Warfare 3? This says, hey, if we release a game on Xbox, it's going to be released on PlayStation. Now, Microsoft has every reason to describe the deal as proposed to Sony in as positive terms as possible. We'll see Sony say some different things about this proposed license when we see their observations. Scope. The remedy applies to Call of Duty titles for consoles and associated content, including all past and current Call of Duty titles and all future Call of Duty titles available on Xbox. The remedy will apply for a period of 10 years, will apply to all Sony consoles, including successor consoles, and the remedy will provide Sony with parity on release date, content, features, upgrades, quality, and playability with the Xbox platform. Microsoft is prepared to commit to have an objective third-party assessor, and then there's some snipped information about that assessor. So another way, they're okay with having some other body or person assess whether parity has been achieved between the PlayStation and the Xbox. It's one of the reasons why, when you get to Sony's response, it looks a little bit disingenuous because Sony has said, well, maybe they'll put in bugs that'll pop up later. All purchases will be subject to a revenue sharing arrangement with Sony retaining X percent of the revenue from sales of Call of Duty uh, and more snipped information. Taking account of all payments from Sony to Activision, Sony currently receives a snipped percentage of revenues from sales of Call of Duty. Presumably, this says that our deal would be better than what Sony currently has, but we don't know because of all this snipped information. Wholesale pricing parity. The remedy will provide that the wholesale price of Call of Duty games offered to Sony is SNP for the equivalent version of the game on the Xbox platform. So, if there are any ways that you can think of that Microsoft could take advantage of this, can increase prices for Call of Duty to Sony, or not have parity of content or features, Microsoft is trying, at least as described by themselves, to address those to the CMA's satisfaction. Any Call of Duty game in a Microsoft multi-game subscription will be eligible for inclusion in Sony's multi-game subscription at the same time and for the same duration, with more snipped information. What we will see here is that while this sounds like a big deal, I've highlighted it in red, right? They say it's not going to be exclusive to Game Pass. You'll be allowed to put any Game Pass game in the Call of Duty franchise on PlayStation Plus. The economics terms are not described here, and Sony is going to say that the economics terms are where the rubber hits the road. Microsoft's remedy will include the following mechanisms for monitoring compliance, a monitoring trustee, an objective third-party assessor, fast-track dispute resolutions through arbitration, Microsoft's proposed remedy addresses the console gaming SLC, and the CMA's concerns in the remedies notice. So, we've already been comprehensively answering your issues, and you don't need to do anything else, CMA. The proposed licensing remedy fully addresses each of your concerns. Call of Duty will not be exclusive. Call of Duty will not be a time exclusive. There will be parity of quality and playability. There will not be content exclusivity, even though it exists today. Based on existing contractual relations, the proposed remedy is capable of a full and timely implementation. The remedy reflects the existing market characteristics, given that it ensures the continued access to a content input that is already available. The existing contractual relations also ensure that the parameters of the remedy are workable, clear, and not complex. As Call of Duty has been on PlayStation platform for 20 years, this is not a new or untested relationship, 
but is instead the continuation of a long-standing commercial one. This can be fully implemented with certainty. Now, Sony's going to have an objection to saying Microsoft owning Activision is not the same party that it is negotiating with Activision because Activision wants their game to be everywhere in as many places as possible, and Microsoft has different incentives. Sony is not wrong in that. Then, for these behavioral remedies, Microsoft tries to identify the issues that the CMA's regulatory guidelines have with potential behavioral remedies. That there could be specification risk, that they, they won't be able to identify properly how this deal should look. Parity is a well-understood legal concept as Microsoft, which is commonly used in console game licensing agreements, so there is no specification risk. There's no circumvention risk, that we haven't forgotten ways that we might be able to screw Sony over, so you don't have to worry about that, CMA. Until the remedy enters into force, Sony remains protected by its existing agreements with Activision, which consist of SNP and SNP. Microsoft has complied with the terms of all contracts following previous acquisitions, and Sony has not alleged otherwise. Once the remedy enters into force, Sony will be protected by Microsoft's undertakings to the CMA here, and the contracts they already have with Activision, those deals that Microsoft is not going to breach. Under the remedy, Microsoft SNP, SNP, SNP. And then somehow there's a reference to Minecraft. Minecraft has grown to become a highly popular game on multiple gaming platforms, including PlayStation and Nintendo. Minecraft Legends is due for release on 18 April 2023 and will be available on the same date on Nintendo, PlayStation, Steam, Windows, and Xbox. In any event, Microsoft would, as part of the remedies, SNP. So I think this is comparing what they want to do with Call of Duty to what they've done with Minecraft, but we don't have enough information because of too many SNPs. In terms of enforcement, SNP are supplemented by the appointment of a monitoring trustee who will provide regular reports to the CMA. So the CMA doesn't need to spend its own money and it doesn't need to worry about enforcement risk, says Microsoft. No distortion risk. Offered for a 10-year term, the proposed remedy is comprehensive in duration, ensuring Sony access through the current console generation and the release of the next generation. If the game is guaranteed to be available on the next PlayStation, which will be released in the next 10 years, there is no concern that Sony may be disadvantaged with the introduction of a new console generation. No monitoring and enforcement risk. Mon Microsoft has included specific mechanisms to allow for monitoring, audit of compliance with the parity undertakings, and dispute resolution. The remedies take place in a highly transparent marketplace, and Sony is a long-term and experienced licensee of Call of Duty games, and has all the information it needs to detect potential breaches. The remedy proposal is easily monitored, and Microsoft will provide the trustee and assessor with the information required in order to certify compliance with the remedy. So, in some ways, this is kind of a trust us, we'll make sure that this all works, but it does at least appear to be well thought out. And you also see in the no distortion risk section how you get to 10 years, which I had said earlier in this playlist was a hugely long time for the tech industry. It seems designed by Microsoft specifically to address the console shift. That one of the things identified by a number of the regulatory bodies that have an issue with this particular deal is that people do make decisions as to what console they're going to have at the launch of the new consoles. And if Call of Duty is specifically not available to Sony at that launch, Microsoft might be able to take an untoward win in the console race because of Call of Duty. And so Microsoft says, we're going to make sure that it's available on both platforms during that console switchover so that you don't have to worry about market distortion. The proposed remedy will preserve and enhance the RCBs. If we don't get Activision and Call of Duty, we can't give the RCBs we talked about above, which is access to Nintendo players and content parity. Microsoft's proposed remedy will preserve the RCBs outlined by ensuring parity between Sony as the largest console platform and Microsoft. The proposed remedy will ensure that Call of Duty is in fact made available on quote-unquote equal terms, which has not been the case for the past 20 years. So sideswipes at Sony right there. Moreover, the proposed remedy will allow Sony to place Call of Duty in its own subscription service, PlayStation Plus, which is not happening right now. 
The economic literature supports that behavioral remedies providing rivals access to content are a way of achieving the benefits of a vertical integration while protecting against potential costs and as such are preferable to structural approaches. Generally speaking, we economically don't much care about vertical integrations because they can provide such high levels of efficiency for consumers at the end state. Now, different economists and different regulatory bodies and different politicians will tell you different things about that particular statement, but historically, we've cared about horizontal mergers. That's taking out a competitor. If Microsoft bought Sony, there would be one fewer console on the market versus vertical, which is Microsoft purchasing a different portion of the product pipeline here, the production and publishing of video games to add into their own ecosystem that we do eliminate marginalization, that you eliminate one of the middlemen that takes a number uh, of money in order to actually make the service make sense for their business proposition. And that helps consumers on the line because that lowers prices and potentially increases the quality for them. So when we look at this, Microsoft is using economic literature, which isn't the strongest legal argument, but it's not wrong in suggesting that generally speaking, we like vertical integrations because they provide efficiencies down the line. And so behavioral remedies make a lot of sense for a vertical integration and are more proportionate, let's say, to what issues the CMA might have. In other words, access-based remedies are better than divestiture remedies because they permit the achieving of the benefits of the vertical integration, which a structural remedy would destroy, while guarding against the potential costs that you've identified. Similarly, for cloud gaming SLCs, Microsoft has proposed a content licensing remedy to folks that really haven't been identified yet to the same extent that Sony has. The CMA provisionally considers that in the counterfactual, at least some cloud gaming providers, especially those with a buy-to-play or bring-your-own-game offering, would have Activision's most valuable games available on their platforms on the date of their release in the next five years. In particular, the CMA provisionally considers it likely, in particular, that Activision would snip in the near future absent the merger to bring their games to something like Stadia. Not Stadia particularly, because Stadia isn't going to exist by the time we're talking about this merger being finished, but the Stadia-like experience where you buy a game and they can play it in cloud-based services. To resolve the cloud gaming SLC, Microsoft will commit to license Activision games, including Call of Duty and World of Warcraft, to cloud gaming providers with a buy-to-play or bring-your-own-game offering for a period of 10 years. So not the kind of multi-game subscription service cloud gaming incorporated into Game Pass, but those services that are specifically business models that are digital streaming stores for games are going to get one of these licenses. Now identifying those is a little bit of a question mark. They aren't identified in this particular response from Microsoft. So it'll be interesting to see. Obviously it's a nascent market, so we don't know what streaming services are gonna be offered in the next 10 years. Microsoft is trying to get in front of that with the CMA by saying we'll offer it to everybody. And it looks a lot like what we talked about with respect to Nintendo and Nvidia and Sony. The CMA has identified two potential structural remedies prohibition of the merger or a partial divestiture of part of Activision. Before turning to the specifics of their proposed remedies, Microsoft notes the following legal points. In considering possible divestment remedies, it is important to recall the nature of the relevant statutory provisions. Section 36.2 of the Enterprise Act of 2002 provided that the CMA is to decide whether action should be taken for the purpose of remedying, mitigating, or preventing. Thus, the language of the statute does not require full prevention of any SLC identified, instead recognizes that mitigation may be sufficient. The requirements of Section 36.2 are also qualified by 36.3, to the effect that the CMA shall have regard to achieving a comprehensive solution to the SLC and any adverse effects arising as is reasonable and practicable. The obligation to have regard to a condition or requirement is not an obligation to fulfill that requirement. Any such consideration is of a solution which is both reasonable and practicable. Now, this is a little bit bold of Microsoft to actually go and tell the CMA what its legal obligations are, especially when I don't think you actually change much from what the CMA said its legal obligations are. So 
Microsoft is saying, hey, don't forget to read your statute. This is the power that you have. And you don't have to prevent an SLC. You just have to look at whether remedying or mitigating is enough. And you also have to look at what is reasonable and practicable. I think the CMA already knows that. So I'm not sure I would make the same case from Microsoft side of things. But it is right to suggest, hey, the CMA has to take all of this into consideration. In carrying out its assessment, the CMA has consistently recognized that any remedy must be proportionate. That means that the remedy must be effective to achieve the legitimate aim in question, must be no more onerous than is required to achieve that aim, must be the least onerous if there is a choice of equally effective measures, and in any event must not produce adverse effects which are disproportionate to the aim pursued. Those considerations must also take into account the potentially extraterritorial nature of effect or any remedy. If and insofar as remedy would necessarily affect the manner in which the parties carry out their business outside the jurisdiction, the CMA will need to take such ramifications into account. Whilst the remedial powers of the CMA may have impacts overseas, the more and greater those effects, the less reasonable, proportionate, and practical will be the remedy. This is particularly relevant in this case as the merger delivers rivalry-enhancing efficiencies and substantial customer benefits globally and has been cleared in a number of jurisdictions. The demands of comedy require the CMA to consider the international dimension carefully, particularly given that the merger situation is taking place outside of the jurisdiction and the UK accounts for only X percent of COD revenues and global COD monthly active users. This is the paragraph we talked about above. This is comedy. Hey, you have to consider whether or not the other regulators have approved this deal because this is global in impact and you have to think about that from an international comedy kind of standpoint. Now, it's not the strongest argument in the world. The CMA doesn't have to jump off that bridge because it's other regulators decided to do so, but it is at least useful on one metric, which is that somebody in non-CMA office is going to care about international relations and how it interacts with other regulatory bodies throughout. For the reasons further outlined below, the structural remedies considered in the remedies notice, even if effective and practicable, are not proportionate in circumstances where, in the context of a vertical merger, behavioral remedies are effective in remedying and significantly mitigating any SLC and or adverse effects. So, since we're looking at minimizing what the cost and practicability of your use of power is CMA, if behavioral remedies solve this issue, it shouldn't get to the structural level because behavioral remedies are less costly and less problematic for the parties in question. Microsoft isn't wrong there, but whether or not the CMA agrees is an open question. A prohibition on the merger is wholly unjustified given that the SLC identified by the CMA relates to only one franchise in relation to consoles and cloud gaming in the UK. This is particularly the case given the agreement reached between Microsoft and NVIDIA, which Microsoft considers resolves the cloud gaming SLC completely. Nor would such a remedy be reasonable given its extraterritorial ambit and effect. This is a merger which has been found to increase competition by a number of competitive agencies worldwide and which will deliver benefits conservatively estimated at X billion dollars to customers globally. To prohibit the deal because of the impact on Sony in the UK is not reasonable given the CMA's ability to mitigate the harm in other ways. This is another sideswipe at Sony, right? Don't fight this deal because you're trying to protect Sony. A Call of Duty or Activision divestment, remember that's a possibility from the CMA as well, would effectively involve the largest divestment ever required by the CMA. The Activision and Blizzard segments operate on a largely independent basis both from each other and from King. However, even a divestment of the Call of Duty business or the Activision segment alone would be the largest divestment the CMA has required under the Enterprise Act of 2002. The businesses to be divested are outside the UK, again making the remedy aggressively extraterritorial in nature. An divestment of part of Activision that is active globally in order to address the UK-specific issues identified is not reasonable, given the benefits which the merger will deliver globally. In any event, a partial divestment would be highly uncertain and impracticable. A partial divestment of the Activision and Blizzard segments would snip. 
Moreover, Microsoft would snip. From the CMA's perspective, the success of a divestment process would be highly uncertain given the size and global nature of the business to be divested. Now, we don't know what's actually being said here, but one can imagine that what's being said is they are entwined together and it wouldn't be obvious who the buyer would be for these large segments and that Microsoft would walk away if it were just King, for instance. There are snip and step. Achieving such a divestment on the CMA standard six-month timetable would seem unlikely, would be the guess there for the snipped on language. A divestment would have severe adverse effects on the development of competition because it would prevent Microsoft from achieving its key strategic objective, namely building a mobile gaming business with sufficient scale in order to challenge Google and Apple. Notably, in this particular section, Microsoft says... It is the games Warzone Mobile and Diablo Immortal rather than the King games which provide Microsoft with the assets, know-how, and talent to develop mobile versions of its own console games. That is what it wants. So the King games are useful. We've talked about the King side of things and the revenue that it makes for Activision. But what Microsoft really wants is know-how, the intellectual and institutional know-how, to make mobile versions of Halo or Gears of War or anything else that they have that they think could compete with the Googles and Apples of the world. If you kill Activision and Blizzard assets from the deal, if you make us divest them, then we're not going to get that know-how and we're not going to get the main strategic reason for purchasing the company, which is why I think the SNP language appears that Microsoft might walk away if you decided to do that. Carve out of these mobile games from the divestment perimeter would not be practicable for the reasons outlined below. Call of Duty Mobile is developed and owned by Timmy Studios, a subsidiary of Tencent. Any spin-out of the game would therefore involve licensing of random things. Call of Duty Mobile is expected to be phased out over time with the launch of Warzone Mobile. Warzone Mobile is scheduled for a release later in 2023 with snipped information. Diablo Mortal was released in June 2022 and co-developed with NetEase, the mobile and PC versions of the game SNP, and there's cross-play and cross-progression. The mobile and PC versions of the game are tied technically and commercially, and there are also ties to other Diablo titles in terms of art and game mechanic similarities, although there is no cross-progression between those titles. Similarly, they talk about Hearthstone and Warcraft arc-like rumble. They've got a number of mobile titles that they just think don't make sense to have a divestment of the type that the, the CMA is describing. And again, Activision is just intertwined in such a way that the divestment has never made a ton of sense for me from a structural standpoint. The CMA's proposed divestment remedy would be disproportionate. In carrying out its assessment, the CMA must select a remedy which is appropriate, necessary, minimal, and not produce adverse effects which are disproportionate. Both the prohibition and partial divestment are clearly disproportionate. The divestment remedies proposed eliminate substantial RCBs. The loss of benefits is not limited to the UK. Given that the divestment remedies proposed are extraterritorial in scope, substantial harm will be caused to consumers in other countries, including countries where the deal has already been cleared. Finally, a prohibition or partial divestment remedy in this case will result in costs to the UK consumers through distortions in market outcomes, be disproportionate to the size of the cloud gaming SLC, which the CMA has preliminarily identified, and reduce investment in innovation. Look, you using your powers here is going to hurt the market overall, and you don't have to do it this way, says Microsoft. There is a further unique aspect in this case, says Microsoft. That is that one of the competition concerns which the CMA is attempting to prevent already exists, just directed at the smaller player in the market, Microsoft. The CMA provisionally finds that even where content is available on PlayStation and Xbox, competition is only effective where Call of Duty is available on equal terms. That is not the case today, with Sony having exclusive access to certain Call of Duty content. The CMA's logic implies that Xbox, as the console with the reduced offering, exerts a weaker competitive constraint as a result. There's never been a vertical merger where input foreclosure was found to give rise to an SLC in such circumstances. In this case, a divestment will eliminate rivalry-enhancing efficiencies and preserve the status quo where PlayStation has doubled the installed base 
acknowledged content leadership and exclusive content in relation to Call of Duty, a game the CMA says is capable of making a material difference to the competitiveness of rivals gaming platforms, and this is why divestment is Sony's preferred outcome as the dominant market leader globally. I actually think Sony's preferred outcome is a block, but fair enough, Microsoft. In considering the interests of consumers, the CMA should treat Sony's statements with utmost caution. Now, this is a sentence that Sony and Microsoft are basically going to exchange with each other, where here Microsoft says, Sony is trying to get this because it will benefit them. That's not your job, CMA. You should consider their statements as very self-motivated, and you should take them with utmost caution. Sony will say Microsoft is not to be trusted in their own document. So we're really at high levels of arguing with each other and the CMA in these documents. If the CMA upholds its provisional conclusion that making Call of Duty partially exclusive to Xbox will give rise to an SLC, the CMA must recognize that Call of Duty has been partially exclusive to PlayStation since 2015. A divestment which restores the status quo restores the partial exclusivity in favor of PlayStation. Based on the logic set out in the CMA's provisional findings, a divestment would cause harm to Xbox and PC gamers as compared to Microsoft's proposed licensing remedy. Microsoft isn't wrong. However, contractual restraints are treated differently than mergers in every jurisdiction in the world. So it's not as strong an argument as Microsoft is presenting here. The CMA provisionally concludes that Call of Duty is an important input to PlayStation. It is one of the three largest franchises on PlayStation and contributed a significant share of PlayStation's consumer spending gameplay time in 2021. The parties do not agree with the CMA's conclusion, but Call of Duty is also one of the three largest franchises on Xbox and contributed a similar share of Xbox's consumer spending gameplay time in the UK. As such, if Call of Duty is an important input for PlayStation, which is denied, the CMA has to accept that it is also an important input for Xbox. <coughs> Xbox then has an interesting survey. Call of Duty content and time exclusives impact Xbox more than PlayStation. The CMA provisionally concludes that not making Activision content available on equal terms would reduce the console's competitive offering. Microsoft's YouGov survey, which I don't take very far, but which they're using here in this document, shows that the potential impact of Call of Duty partial exclusivity is small, but importantly, the impact is greater on Xbox than on PlayStation. A small percentage of gamers who intend to purchase PlayStation for their next big gaming console would switch to Xbox if Call of Duty was partially withheld, i.e. if Xbox got the exclusives rather than PlayStation. A larger percentage of gamers who intend to purchase an Xbox as their next big gaming console would switch to PlayStation if Call of Duty was partially withheld from the Xbox, but available on PlayStation, which is the status quo. Microsoft internal documents also show that. As such, if the CMA expects that Sony will be significantly weakened by partial exclusivity, the CMA must equally acknowledge that Microsoft is significantly weakened by the status quo. That's fine, and that's useful logically, and in places like editorials and video game articles, I'm not so, so certain that it actually affects any of the legal arguments on a merger basis. And a bunch of snipped appendices. Okay, so that's Microsoft's response. That's a much longer document than Sony's observations. So we'll look at Sony's observations now. Sony obviously takes a different tack than Microsoft. Basically says the CMA is doing exactly the right thing, but really needs to make sure that they don't allow these behavioral remedies to be allowed. Sony Interactive Entertainment, SIE, welcomes the opportunity to comment on the CMA's notice of possible remedies. SIE agrees with the CMA assessment. SIE also concurs with the CMA's view as set out in the remedies notice that the harm the transaction would cause could only be addressed through prohibition or structural remedies. Now, I don't think the CMA actually makes that statement. The CMA says, we think that these aren't met for behavioral remedies, but also we're going to take into account behavioral remedies because Microsoft is going forward and looking at an access remedy to try to assuage us. So Sony kind of articulates the CMA's assessment a little bit more broader than I think the CMA actually does, which is always a little bit of a risk. Sony continues, 
As explained below, the dynamic and evolving nature of the gaming industry and the competitive lever that a behavioral commitment would give Microsoft over PlayStation's fate and Microsoft's history of non-compliance mean that behavioral remedies are not suited to this case. So Sony doesn't want access to be allowed. Sony wants the deal to be blocked. The transaction should be prohibited, says Sony. The CMA's merger remedies guidelines explain that when considering remedies, the CMA must respect the need to achieve as comprehensive a solution as is reasonable and practicable to address the competitive harm the CMA has identified. The CMA will therefore seek remedies that can effectively address the harm and its effects in the least costly, intrusive, and disproportionate manner. Now, it's hard to actually square that circle that Sony says that you have to prohibit the deal when that is by far the, the highest level of assertion of power that the CMA could engage with and talking about what's disproportionate and what's least costly and intrusive to allowing the parties to, com to consummate their transaction. The remedies notice identifies prohibition of the transaction as a comprehensive solution. It also finds that the risks of the remedy are very low. That's not accurate, right? We talked about this when we went over it in the document, but the risks of the remedy's effectiveness are very low, meaning that we don't have a problem saying that if we prohibit Activision from being, micro being owned by Microsoft, that Microsoft won't be able to control Activision. That is very, very true in terms of its effectiveness, but it doesn't mean that there aren't risks associated with this. There's a number of, di of distortion effects of having a regulator come in and block a deal like this, not the least of which is effective of Activision, right? This all started when Activision gets sued for all sorts of things by the state of California, has an EEOC complaint leveled against it, and Activision's stock price goes way, way down. If a company can create a video game that is just so successful that the investors aren't allowed to sell their interests in the company for a clear profit, that the Activision investors are stuck with Activision because their game is too successful, that has an effect on the marketplace and is disproportionate to what the CMA and the FTC have identified. But Sony says, no, that's great. Prohibiting the transaction would safeguard against the foreclosure strategies Microsoft could employ to withhold or degrade access to Activision content. It would, by definition, restore the pre-transaction competitive conditions, and it would do so in a clear-cut, proportionate, and straightforward manner. Now, this is kind of the prelude to what we saw in the Paul Tassi article about degrading their Call of Duty, and which Paul Tassi described as unhinged, and that Tom Warren of The Verge gave an upside-down smiley face to. But I think it's important to note that what Sony is doing here and what they will continue to do and have done with some of these statements to the CMA and other regulatory bodies is take what is the language of what they've identified themselves and say, yep, you're right, right? We agree with the CMA. The CMA is very, very smart indeed, and they could, in fact, degrade our product. If we look at what the issue statement from the CMA said, their theories of harm were as follows. In its phase one decision, the CMA found that the merger gave rise to a realistic prospect of an SLC, a lessening of competition, as a result of vertical effects arising from, among other things, degrading Activision's content, including popular games such as Call of Duty. So the CMA already put this in paper, in black and white, and said, hey, there could be an issue with degrading of Call of Duty. Sony says, yep, you're right. And so the only way to get around that is prohibiting the whole deal. Now, Microsoft said we can do access. We can have a third-party assessor. We have all these various other ways of making sure that you're taken care of. Sony says, nope, we don't trust them. In considering divestment options, the CMA would need to ensure that the divested entity would be able to complete, compete viably on a standalone basis and without support of those parts of Activision's business that might remain with Microsoft. Yep. Sony is not aware of the extent to which the Activision business units identified in the remedies notice are integrated together as a whole, such as that investing one or more of these units could impair the divested entity's ability to compete. Sony trusts that the CMA will take this into account in weighing up different remedy options. So Sony basically says nothing here with respect to divestiture. 
They say, look, we don't know how entangled they are. We don't know how functional a divestiture can be. We trust that you'll look at it properly. Sony says, CMA's guidance, Microsoft's recent proposal, and Microsoft's past conduct show that behavioral commitments are not suitable. For several reasons, behavioral remedies are not suitable in this case. First, none of the circumstances identified in the guidelines for behavioral remedies are present. Second, behavioral remedies in the case would raise the risks that the guidelines seek to avoid. Third, behavioral remedies cannot adequately address the myriad ways Microsoft could circumvent its obligations. This is confirmed by the agreement alluded to in the remedies notice that Microsoft has proposed to Sony to maintain Call of Duty on PlayStation. Microsoft's past conduct of violating behavioral commitments and promises to the public further shows that its representations must be treated with caution. Can't believe Microsoft. None of the circumstances identified in the guidelines for behavioral remedy are present here. The guidelines set out a well-established framework for when a behavioral remedy can in principle address an SLC arising from a merger. As a preliminary point, the guidelines explain that behavioral remedies are less likely to deal with the source of a competition concern, less likely to have an effective impact on the competition concern and its, and its effects, more likely to create significant costly distortions in market outcomes and often require monitoring and enforcement once implemented. In light of these concerns, the CMA has been clear that it will generally only consider behavioral remedies in three circumstances. We saw this in the notice. First, whether divestiture or prohibition is feasible. The CMA may consider behavioral remedies if divestiture or prohibition are not feasible, i.e. A, trans a transaction is closed and the businesses are integrated. Divestiture and prohibition are eminently feasible in this case. The transaction is not yet completed and Activision remains an independent entity. Now, you don't have to pull them apart, but that doesn't make them feasible, especially depending on how Activision is constructed and what your concern is, particularly with Call of Duty. Whether the SLC is expected to have a short duration. Activision content, in particular Call of Duty, is and will continue to be an essential input for the gaming industry. Now here's where Sony has already asserted this. The CMA has already bought it, and the FTC has to some extent. And it's one of those areas where if you want to talk about unchanged arguments, I think Nintendo's existence and the existence of Steam and other aspects of the video game industry that don't have access to Call of Duty or didn't have access to Call of Duty for long periods of time is an absolutely killer blow to the argument that Call of Duty is somehow essential to functioning as a competitive body within video gaming. I don't think it's essential at all. It's useful. You can make some money with it. We would prefer to have that money, says Sony, than not. But Nintendo survived. Steam survived. And PlayStation would survive without Call of Duty, even though Sony has argued now in paper, in legally binding documents across the world, that it couldn't. The tremendous success of Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 is a testament to the ongoing importance and irreplaceability of the franchise. And that's a ridiculous statement. It's a hugely successful game that was very, very popular, much more so than the Call of Duty that released in the immediately prior year. And it suggests that any game that achieves a certain amount of success is important and irreplaceable to actually functioning as a video game enterprise. That the next Grand Theft Auto has to be concerned about this. That Rockstar and Take-Two have to be concerned about a block here because that means that their shareholders' value of their stock has gone way down because they can't sell, they can't get exit, they can't get liquidity if anybody that would be interested in purchasing them would be blocked. And the PF specifically identify an SLC in cloud gaming, which is a nascent area that could take decades to evolve to maturity, which is also another reason why regulators should be pretty careful about interjecting in what that market becomes. Whether behavioral measures can preserve substantial customer benefits. A third reason the CMA may consider a behavioral remedy is where there are substantial customer benefits that would be preserved by behavioral remedy, but not a structural one. There is no evidence of that being the case here. In particular, any behavioral commitment from Microsoft to grant rivals access to Call of Duty could pose a greater, not less, lesser risk for consumers, as the myriad ways Microsoft could withhold or degrade access would be extremely difficult to monitor and police. 
That is a really interesting argument from a logical perspective, right? In particular, any commitment from Microsoft to give rivals access to Call of Duty, that Call of Duty will be on Nintendo Switch, could pose a, a greater risk for consumers. Could pose a greater risk for consumers because their Call of Duty might suck. Well, that's going to be a philosophical question for many, but is a Call of Duty that somehow has a Trojan horse of bugs in it better or worse than not having a Call of Duty at all on your system? I'd argue that access at its baseline level is better, and also that suggesting that it will be degraded is a problem in and of itself. Now, the myriad ways Microsoft can withhold access is interesting because, at least as described by Microsoft, the license with Nintendo says day and date with Xbox, so it's unclear exactly what Sony is talking about here. But we do reserve the right to say, hey, Microsoft could be gilding the lily and describing the license in more generous terms than are deserved, and we can at least allow for Sony to say, well, that's not exactly how it is. If Microsoft failed to comply with its commitment, it would likely only risk paying a fine, but rivals' access to Call of Duty would be immediately foreclosed, irreparably damaging their ability to compete and ultimately harming consumers. So, the behavioral commitment poses a greater risk because Microsoft might just ignore it. I don't know that that's a great argument. Then they talk about the risks. Spec specification risk arises where the form of conduct required to address competitive harm cannot be specified with sufficient detail and clarity. Sony says the commitment that Microsoft is prepared to make, evidenced by its most recent proposal to Sony regarding access to Call of Duty, would only oblige Microsoft to use its blank to ensure parity between Xbox and PlayStation and blank. The commitment falls far short of specifying with sufficient clarity what would constitute compliant behavior. So Sony isn't happy with how parity is defined. That's why Microsoft put forth a sentence that said parity is a known legal concept. That can be both true and Sony can also be accurate in saying that parity is defined in the contract, isn't defined significantly enough. Similarly, with circumvention risk, they say Microsoft could have a hundred different ways of making Sony's Call of Duty bad that wouldn't be addressed by a license because a license can't contemplate every possible bad thing that the another party can do. It's one of the reasons why cartelization is so hard, right? We don't want rivals entering into agreements because they can monopolize the market, but also rivals don't necessarily trust each other, right? Contracts can only be as effective as the amount of trust that you have in the party contracting with you because there's always ways to get around specific things that are written on paper. And so Sony says, look, you can't get around that. And we don't trust Microsoft. So what are we even talking about here? In the distortion risk section, they say the pricing terms Microsoft has proposed for buy-to-play games would effectively give Microsoft a lever to raise the prices Sony could charge gamers to play their favorite game. And for multi-game subscription services, PlayStation Plus, Microsoft has proposed a licensing arrangement that would blank. This would make PlayStation Plus commercially unviable, forcing Sony either to raise its PlayStation Plus price or not offer Call of Duty on PlayStation Plus at all. So Microsoft says, hey, you can put it on PlayStation Plus if we put it on Game Pass. Sony says, yeah, sure, but your commercial terms offered to us are so onerous and so ridiculous that we never could. So that would make it essentially a Game Pass exclusive by nature of the, of the commercial terms that you've offered. We can't know whether or not that's the case because all of the information about that offer have been snipped out of the Microsoft statement. Monitoring and enforcement risk concerns the possibility that behavioral remedies cannot be appropriately monitored and enforced. As noted, the many strategies of foreclosure available to Microsoft make it difficult for any behavioral remedy to be effectively monitored and practically enforced. And, given the fast pace at which the gaming industry is evolving, it would be challenging to tailor a remedy that would provide the means to monitor Microsoft's ongoing compliance. The different mechanisms available to Microsoft to avoid its obligations mean any behavioral remedy is not suitable. Microsoft could deploy multiple strategies to fully or partially foreclose access to Activision content. 
in relation to Call of Duty. Sony has also explained that in addition to withholding access to existing or future Call of Duty titles, Microsoft could adopt one or several partial foreclosure strategies to impair PlayStation's competitiveness, including raising the price of Call of Duty, degrading the quality and performance of Call of Duty, degrading Call of Duty to ignore PlayStation-specific features, restricting, degrading, or not prioritizing investment in the multiplayer experience on PlayStation, or making Call of Duty available on, multi on multi-game subscriptions only on Game Pass. Now, Microsoft has at least ostensibly answered most of these with parity and pricing provisions and access to game subscription service provisions in their license, Sony says they're unacceptable. A behavioral remedy would not be able to protect fully against these kinds of strategies. To take three examples, on pricing, Microsoft would be licensing a critical gaming input to its horizontal competitor and would therefore have a clear incentive to raise the price of Call of Duty to degrade PlayStation's competitiveness. And there's an obvious economic change in incentive between negotiating with an independent Activision today and an Activision required by Microsoft. Today, Activision is incentivized to reach an agreement with Sony to distribute Call of Duty. Post-transaction, the merged entity would benefit from a failure to distribute Call of Duty on PlayStation. Now, that's a little bit unclear. We don't know whether they would benefit if it failed because we don't know the money that could be made. If it's making so much money from PlayStation, generally speaking, Microsoft isn't going to want to just abandon that. This dramatically improves the merged entity's bargaining position and would allow Microsoft to obtain a higher revenue share for its content than will be achieved on the merits with an independent Activision. And again, that might well be true. Microsoft could get more money from it because Microsoft doesn't care as much if it's on the PlayStation as Activision does, but there's nothing wrong with leverage bar bargaining positions. It is not clear how any behavioral commitment could adequately address such a concern in a dynamic industry such as gaming. Even a monitoring trustee backed by a licensing commitment raises intractable practical problems. Who would set prices and how? What level of information sharing and communications would be permissible? How would it be determined whether prices were fair? How would non-discrimination be ensured given that Microsoft would be making a purely internal accounting transfer? And who would make the determination as to fairness, reasonableness, and non-discrimination? Second, the partial foreclosure mechanisms described above could arise even without an active decision on the part of Microsoft to degrade Call of Duty on PlayStation. This is perhaps, in my opinion, Sony's best argument. Instead, partial foreclosure could result simply from Microsoft's differing incentives post-transaction as compared to an independent Activision. Post-transaction, Microsoft will need to make choices about the support it will provide to develop any PlayStation version of Call of Duty. Even if Microsoft is operating in good faith, it will be incentivized to support and prioritize development of the Xbox version of the game, such as by using its best engineers and more of its resources. This is, in fact, exactly what we see with marketing deals with these various companies. That's why Sony has a marketing deal with Hogwarts Legacy and with Call of Duty and with other games that are designed to be big AAA sellers in the video game industry, is that Sony would like to have that priority of development in-house, which is one of the reasons why, while I think it's a good argument here, it's also a questionable argument in the broad scope of the video game industry in and of itself. There would be no practicable way for the CMA or Sony to monitor how Microsoft chooses to allocate its resources and the quality slash quantity of engineers that devotes to the PlayStation version of Call of Duty to ensure that Sony would be treated fairly and equally. Third, swiftly detecting any diversions from and ensuring compliance with a commitment as to technical or graphical quality would be challenging. For example, and here's the Paul Tassi and Tom Warren statement, Microsoft might release a PlayStation version of Call of Duty where bugs and errors emerge only on the game's final level or after later updates. Even if such degradations could be swiftly detected, any remedy would likely come too late, by which time the gaming community would have lost confidence in PlayStation as a go-to venue to play Call of Duty. Indeed, as Modern Warfare 2 attests, Call of Duty is most often purchased in just the first few weeks of release. I certainly think from my own personal perspective, I would be more inclined to buy a Call of Duty game, if I were to buy a Call of Duty game, on Microsoft than PlayStation because of the overall kind of incentive structure that Microsoft would have to make sure that the Xbox version is the one that plays the best. So I don't think Sony is wrong here, but I don't think it's enough to actually scuttle the deal if I'm the CMA. 
And again, with respect to that being an unhinged argument, I don't think it's very likely to occur and the reputational damage to Microsoft would be substantial. But it is, as I said, reflective of what the CMA itself had determined was a potential substantial lessening of competition in the market. And Sony has just kind of hooked its wagon to that particular argument. Then we have a little shade thrown at Microsoft as an entity. Microsoft has in the past not complied with its behavioral commitments, so we don't have to listen to them now. First, the European Commission found in 2004 that Microsoft committed an abuse via its dominant Windows operating system by depriving rivals of indispensable interoperability information. The EC ordered Microsoft to supply the input to rivals at reasonable fees, an order Microsoft agreed to follow. This would be broadly the same kind of promise that Microsoft would be making to license Activision content to its rivals except for the fact that it's not the dominant operating system or dominant hardware in the market, but sure. Microsoft later violated the EC's order by demanding unreasonable royalty fees and patent payments for the interoperability information, leading the EC to fine the software company $1.3 billion. As Neely Crow's then-EC competition commissioner stated, Microsoft was the first company in 50 years of EU competition policy that the commission has had to fine for failure to comply with an antitrust decision. I hope that today's decision closes a dark chapter in Microsoft's record of non-compliance. Now, as for non-compliance, it's interesting here, and I've highlighted it in red, of course, that this is 2004 that they bring up. This next bullet is from 2009. Notably, Satya Nadella becomes CEO of Microsoft in the mid-2010s, and Brad Smith becomes their president and intergovernment regulations liaison in a similar time. Second, the EC raised concerns in 2009 that Microsoft had illegally tied its Internet Explorer browser to Windows OS. To resolve the case, Microsoft promised the EC that, among other things, Windows would include an internet browser choice screen to enable users to select their default browser. By Microsoft removed the browser's choice screen from its Windows service pack, released between 2011 and 2012, causing the EC to fine Microsoft $731 million for violating its commitments. Microsoft later took full responsibility for the breach and apologized for it. They have two issues that are both 20 years old, or almost 20 years old, under different management, related to a different portion of the business of Microsoft, saying you don't have to believe anything they ever say because they did these things in the past. Not a violation of a behavioral commitment, Microsoft conduct in relation to the ZeniMax acquisition provides additional evidence of why a behavioral commitment should be approached with caution. Now that's an interesting sentence, right? This is, we know this one. I did a video on this about the fact that neither the CMA nor Microsoft were lying about this particular issue. But even though there isn't a behavioral commitment, what Microsoft's conduct does in respect of ZeniMax is suggestive of why behavioral commitment should be approached with caution. It doesn't make a ton of sense logically from my perspective. When Microsoft proposed acquiring ZeniMax, it told the EC that it would not have the incentive to cease or limit making ZeniMax games available for purchase on rival consoles. It also said that it would take each on a case-by-case -case basis, but that never comes up when Sony talks about it. Microsoft also publicly stated to investors that we highly encourage cross-platform play because if it's good for the gaming ecosystem, it's good for us. We don't have intentions of just pulling all of Bethesda content out of competitor platforms. But soon after the acquisition closed, Xbox head Phil Spencer revealed that all along the deal was about delivering great exclusive games for Xbox. Mr. Spencer later confirmed that the upcoming releases of two of Bethesda's most popular titles, I don't know how Starfield gets on this list, I don't know how it can be most popular when it's not out yet, and Elder Scrolls would be Xbox exclusives. In response to the news, Pete Hines, Bethesda's marketing boss, said, Sorry, all I can really say is I apologize because I'm certain that frustrating the folks, but there's not a whole lot I can do about it. So, again, they're trying to put Xbox on this notion that Starfield and Elder Scrolls were promised in some fashion to not be taken exclusive, but I really don't think Microsoft did that. So it's, it's kind of in that gray area where both sides are kind of speaking a half-truth on this particular situation. But I certainly don't think it's effective enough to say Microsoft cannot be believed because they took these games exclusive. 
At no point is Microsoft telling the EC, the CMA, or the FTC that they don't intend to take some Activision games exclusive, but they are trying to assuage their fears on this particular score. Conclusion, Sony is extremely skeptical that an agreement with Microsoft could be reached, much less monitored and enforced effectively. As a result, the behavioral commitment that was designed to form the basis of an agreement between Microsoft and Sony should not be accepted by the CMA because there is no realistic prospect of such an agreement being reached that would maintain effective competition. More generally, behavioral remedies are unsuited to this case because of the lever they would give Microsoft over PlayStation and the difficulty the CMA would encounter in specifying, monitoring, policing, and enforcing any behavioral commitment. For Sony... It's prohibition or divestiture or the highway. They don't want to enter into any of these agreements. Now, interestingly enough, that was reported on in a number of different places, including by Bloomberg here, as Sony tells UK to force Microsoft Call of Duty sale or veto $69 billion Activision deal. They kind of said that. They said divestiture is a possibility. They said prohibition is a possibility. Interestingly enough, the news we're getting out of the European Union is suggestive of the fact that they're going a different direction. In the Reuters document from earlier this month, Microsoft set to win EU not on Activision with licensing office offer, sources say. Now, as we do in virtual legality, we take that with a grain of salt. Sources close to the deal. We don't know how accurate this is. But the noises we're getting out of the European Commission is that what they're looking at from Microsoft and Sony is suggestive of a Microsoft that they're willing to allow to have these behavioral remedies, these access licenses. The European Commission, as Reuters says, which is scheduled to decide on the deal by April 25th, is not expected to demand that Microsoft sell assets, the people said. In addition to the licensing deals for rivals, Microsoft may also have to offer other behavioral remedies to allay concerns of other parties than Sony, one of the people said. Such remedies typically refer to the future conduct of the merged company. Yes, in fact, they do. Activision shares, which jumped 1.8% in pre-market trading after the Reuters story was published, were up 2.6% in late trade. So this is highly positive for Microsoft and Activision as this deal going through. But the CMA could still stand alone on this, and we do hear noises from other articles that the CMA might elect to do so. In addition, we've got other reporting here that is also suggestive of potentially folks not necessarily going along with Sony's narrative of argumentation here. So here's a tweet, or will be as soon as Twitter decides to load for us, from Lulu Chang Mservi, which we have to take additionally with a grain of salt, not because she's anonymous, but because she is the Executive Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Chief Creative Officer of Activision Blizzard. So nothing wrong with speaking in the interest of you or your employer. But when she says things in these particular tweets, we do have to take them with a grain of salt. So Microsoft offered Sony, says Lulu Musservi, the, do the dominant consolator for well over a decade with 80% market share, a 10-year agreement. We've also offered Sony guaranteed long-term access to Call of Duty, but they keep refusing. Why? She brings up the Tom Warren tweet. Then she says the CEO of SIE, that's Jim Ryan to you and me, answered the question in Brussels. In his words, I don't want a new Call of Duty deal. I just want to block your merger. Now... Tom Warren asks when he said that, and she says February 21st. This gets reported in various places. Here's an article from Tweaktown taking that quote from this tweet and saying this is what he said. And look, it's possible he said that. People in business are just human beings like you or me. They make mistakes all the time. But I will say we have every reason to say this might be what was said. This might also be what the Activision folks heard from things that were a little bit more let's say, legally massaged than this. This is exactly what you don't want to say if you're the CEO of Sony because all of the arguments in the document we just looked at and all of the arguments in general that Sony is making is that the deal will hurt competition, not just Sony, because the, the regulators aren't supposed to care about whether or not it hurts Sony specifically, and that by hurting competition, it will hurt consumers, and so the deal needs to be blocked or they need to divest all of the Call of Duty assets or whatever it might be that will make Sony happy on this particular front. But if you go out there and say, 
I don't even want to listen to access. I just want to block your merger. That sounds like you're using the power of government and the regulatory body in a way that is untowards to help your competitive situation and not the overall marketplace in general. So this is exactly the opposite of what you would want to say. And Jim Ryan is not a new CEO. He would not be, in my opinion, silly enough to say it and frame it in exactly this way. This is exactly what Activision or Microsoft would want to use against him. But that doesn't mean that he didn't make a mistake. It's just something that I would take with a huge grain of salt before I'm writing articles about it in general. Now, Sony has also had other statements regarding all of this happening in the last week. Here's Steven Totillo from Axios with a quote from Sony saying, Redacted versions of the Microsoft statement uh, were made public this week. Information regarding the terms of an offer made by Microsoft to provide future Call of Duty releases on PlayStation was redacted at the request of Microsoft. We believe their current offer will irreparably harm competition and innovation in the industry. Now, a number of people have reported on this irreparably harm concept as well as being over the top. It is over the top in the way you would speak to a friend or somebody about this. Nobody really honestly thinks that if Microsoft were to enter into a license for Call of Duty to Sony that it would irreparably harm the entire video game industry. But when we're talking about legal standards, irreparable harm is the kind of thing that you advance if you're Sony, if you're somebody that's against the deal, to suggest that the power of the regulator should be used to prevent it because irreparable harm is a legal concept. It's a legal term of art that says, well, if something is irreparably harming something else, then we as a judicial or executive body should step in and stop it because otherwise, by the nature of the definition, once the harm is realized, it is unrepairable. That's what irreparable means, right? And so you use irreparable harm as a term to say we want to see the CMA or the FTC or the EC or all three block the deal or force a divestiture because we don't want to have this access fight. But you are seeing more of reports like this and like the Forbes article and Tom Warren of The Verge in general really coming down a little bit hard on Sony for the arguments that they're making, even though in my opinion, they aren't functionally different from what we saw towards the end of last year. It's just that Sony is getting more and more play for how essentially outrageous their language has to be in order to meet the legal terms of art and to advocate for the position that the deal must be blocked in order to preserve gaming as a market for everybody. And so I think a lot of people are looking a little bit more skeptically at that overall. I think that's justified, but I think that's an interesting inflection point in our playlist here, right? Because I think there's a lot of times when I've commented on Sony being ridiculous, right? I called it Call of Duty, obviously, but that really wasn't picked up on in most of the major venues that you see discussing this particular deal. And I think it's starting to change a little bit. And Sony, in order to continue to go down this road, is going to have to double, if not triple down, on this kind of rhetoric. And one does wonder whether they have the stomach for it if they lose the hearts and minds of the gaming journalists that are otherwise covering this industry. And again, we are supported by viewers and subscribers like you through Utreon and Patreon. And special thanks to Karen Paulson for sponsoring this particular video today. Thank you so much. And if neither of those options of, of supporting the channel um, makes sense to you, just subscribing, hitting the buttons that YouTube likes, upvoting, liking, even downvoting, disliking, or otherwise telling your friends that we're having these kinds of conversations in this space on YouTube. Every little bit helps grow this channel and get this news and information out there to more and more people. Now, if you watch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary. 
and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.